Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast for the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, we encourage you to check out our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org. You can also subscribe on iTunes or wherever you like to get podcasts. And now, here's this week's message brought to you by Senior Pastor Adam Russell. Uh, hey, if you want to this morning, open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. John chapter 8, we're in a series called Who He Says He Is, Who He Says He Is, and really what we're looking at are all of the I am statements in John. Jesus says some things about himself in the Gospel of John, in seven different places, he uses this, this, this structure. He says, I am, and then he'll say something new. And last week we looked at uh, the moment where Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and, and this morning uh, we're going to talk about the place where Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And so, Whit, if we can put up John chapter 8, 12 and following, Jesus says this, he spoke to the people once more. So this happened right after that passage that Kate read to us this morning that was so beautiful, uh, 1 through 11, where Jesus meets the woman who's caught in the act of adultery and everybody's like trying to trap Jesus and maybe stone her. And uh, Jesus says to her, well, you know, where are your condemners? She's like, Lord, they're not here. He's like, well... Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And the very next thing that Jesus says to the people, so imagine there's some people around. He says, I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Let's go to the next one. The Pharisees replied, you're making those claims about yourself. Such testimony is not valid. And Jesus told him, these claims are valid, even though I make them about myself, for I know where I came from and I know where I'm going, but you don't know this about me. You judge me by human standards, but I don't judge anyone. That'll be our text this morning. And before we jump into this moment where Jesus talks about being the light of the world, um, I want to start here this morning. I want to talk to you about Copernicus and what's at the center. Copernicus and, and what's at the center. Uh, how, many of you, how many of you remember, maybe from history class, uh, how many of you remember the name Nicholas Copernicus? Anybody remember old, old Nicholas Copernicus 500 years ago? Here, here's basically what happened with Nicholas Copernicus. I was reading about him a little bit this week. It's a fascinating story. It's, it's really cool. And it's also kind of sad and tough. Here, here's essentially what happens. There's a mathematician, his name Nicholas Copernicus, and here's, here's the conclusion that he comes to through observation and through the application of really advanced math. And you have to imagine this, 500 years ago, there's no computer, there's no graphing calculator. We're talking, we're talking people were writing with bird feathers, you know, on parchment, and, and, and through his own real brilliance. It's, it's hard to, to gather through basic observation and then through some math. Copernicus says this, you know, it's not the earth that's at the center of the heavens. The sun is at the center of the heavens and we're going around it. And everyone in his day said what? You're crazy. This is not true. You're a liar. Everyone says this. And not only did everyone think this, but it was, it was powerful people who said to Nicholas, 
you're a liar, this isn't true, it's not in the Bible, this is not the way the world is oriented. Uh, the earth is at the center and, and, and things are going around us and he's saying no. He's like the lone voice saying no. And when he makes this claim, it has, it has repercussions. It has repercussions in the way that good revolutions do. It reoriented cosmology, it reoriented ontology, it reoriented philosophy, and it began to say something even about theology. There's such a radical reorientation, and it shows the degree to which human beings have the tendency to interpret our lives as though we are what? At the center. That was, that was really what was happening. It was like this, this cosmological reality that he is saying, no, I think something else is going on here. And at the same time, he's putting his finger on something that's philo philosophical and also anthropological. Like he's, he's shedding light on a lot of different things. And the thing that was kind of blowing me away this week when I was reading about Copernicus is, is this. I knew that the Catholic Church was upset with him when he started talking like this. What I didn't know is not even the Protestants agreed with him. Like even John Calvin uh, didn't agree with him. And Martin Luther said he was an idiot. And here's what you got. You got this one guy who says something and everybody's like, no, this isn't true. And the Catholics are against you. And now the Protestants are against you. And by the way, Copernicus was a Christian. He's got no quarter, right? And here's the other part. Everyone who's in power is saying he's wrong, but who's the one person who was right? Dang, dang. The scientists of his day scratched their heads, but in the end, Copernicus was right. Yeah, 500 years. No Hubble Space Telescope, no pictures, just observation and math. Yeah. And here's what's wild about Copernicus's observation. The thing that's wild to it about me, or to me about it, is that, that a certain kind of observation would actually make you think that the opposite is true. Uh, after all, when you're living on the earth, how many of you know it doesn't feel like you're moving? Like right now, it doesn't feel like we're moving, but we're actually moving in at least two different directions. So the earth is moving like this, right? Like we're rotating. And as we're rotating, we're also moving in linear space, right? Like we know this now, but how many of you have ever felt that? And in fact, if you were to go outside at night and if you were looking to the heavens at the stars and the planets, what seems to be happening? It feels like I'm sitting still and it feels like the stars are moving, doesn't it? That's what's wild about this. Everyone, everyone thought a certain thing based upon their own experience and what felt right. Copernicus said something else was true and it actually, it actually offends our instincts about what we're seeing. It's the most amazing thing. So, Nicholas Copernicus and what's at the center. Now I want to talk to you about the light of the world. In this morning's text, in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says that he is the light of the world. And he says this in a moment of controversy. In chapter 6, he's made the divine claim that we read last week that he is the bread of life. And he says it in a very particular way. He said he's the bread that came down from heaven. I love that. And, and people are stirred about this. Right away, they pick up like, how can you say that you're the bread that came down from heaven? 
And we've looked at this last week. Jesus is hitting on all these Old Testament themes. He's basically saying he is the true manna. He is the true sustenance that brings actual thriving and nourishment. And people are stirred. Then he says at the end of chapter six, he says, if you want to have this bread, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, which freaked everybody out because it was so culturally offensive to the Jews for a lot of different reasons that we won't get into. But it's, it's basically a dark saying from Jesus. It's a dark saying of his own death on the cross is part of what he was pointing out there. People are, they're, they're stirred culturally disgusted. Then in chapter seven, it's more controversy in the Gospel of John. Uh, the controversy is centered around, is he the Messiah? Is he the one who could return Israel to glory? Uh, is he a prophet? And, and by the way, in chapter seven, everybody's divided on this question. Uh, the leaders from the temple, they already want him dead. And, and Jesus is a challenge to the whole system. He's a challenge to, to Moses, He's a challenge to the law, the tradition, the history. And he seems, he seems to be upending it. And then in chapter eight, they find a woman caught in the act of adultery. And it's always interesting to me when I read that part, why did they only find the woman? Decent question, you know. Why didn't they find the man? Like, I don't know. I don't know. Where's the man? And they brought her to Jesus and they brought her as a trap. They say to Jesus, well, what should we do? Uh, you know, Jesus, the law says to Stoner, uh, it's, a, it's a hardcore tribal test. Do you believe the scriptures, Jesus? Uh, do you honor Moses, Jesus? Are you really serious about this stuff? That's why part of what they're saying. And Jesus, in this really brilliant way, he slows down and he begins to draw something in the dirt. And then he says, well, let, let the person who's never sinned throw the first stone, which is really just so brilliant. Everyone leaves and there he is alone with the woman. And he says, you know what? I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. These are the famous words of Jesus right before he says, I'm the light of the world. The reason I'm setting it up like that is, is this. There's a sense in which we thought Moses was at the center or, or we thought the law was at the center, right? We thought we thought tradition was at the center. Or if we were to update that a little bit, you know, we thought the Bible was at the center or we thought moralistic readings of the scriptures were at the center. Uh, we thought some kind of purity was at the center. Uh, we thought things were known and oriented in a particular kind of way, but we're being shown over and over that something else is at work and one of the things we find in the text this morning is that Jesus is at the center. Jesus is at the center. And aren't you glad, aren't you glad that at the center is a person and that person is someone like Jesus? Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that the center isn't Moses, that it isn't the law, that it isn't like a particular moralistic reading? It, it, isn't, it isn't a weaponized version of Christianity. Aren't you glad that at the center there's a person and that it's Jesus? He's the light of the world. Uh, here's what I want to do this morning. I want to talk to you about light and what it does. I want to do this in reference to Jesus this morning. The first thing that light does is it illuminates. It illuminates. It shows us what pre what's present. It allows our eyes, it allows our eyes to see. Uh, how many of you in the room have ever been to Mammoth Cave? 
Anybody in the room ever been to Mammoth Cave? Uh, anybody, ever, anybody here ever been in Mammoth Cave when they do that thing and they turn all the lights off? It's the wildest thing, isn't it? It's darkness you can feel. Like, do you ever do the test thing where you put your hand literally in front of your eyes, like this close? It's so dark, you can't see your hand one inch in front of your eyes. You can open them up as wide as you want. You cannot perceive it. It's literally that dark. Light illuminates us. It shows us what's present. But light, light shows us what's present. It also shows us what is, what is happening. And, and here's what I would like to say about Jesus this morning. The light of Jesus, um, it, it draws our eye to him. It allows us to see him, but it does this other thing. It allows us to see everything else as it is as well. The light of Jesus shows us not only Jesus himself, but it shows us the world as it is. And here's the thing about the world as it is. The world is beautiful, but how many of you know that the world is broken? And this is one of the things one of the things that the light of Jesus does, it shows us the world beautiful and broken. It shows us the world as it really, really is. I want to talk just maybe for a moment about the brokenness of the world. I mean, just this week, another mass shooting. And by the way, it's not just a mass shooting. 10 people are dead, 13 are wounded. It, it appears that this, this mass shooting is racially motivated. It appears that this, this mass shooting is racially motivated. Young man, 18 years old, apparently written racial slurs on his weapon, enters a parking lot and a grocery store and begins to gun down people for no reason. It appears this young man has written a manifesto. He attempted to live stream this, right? Right. And, and, and one of the things that happens when we, when we experience these kinds of stories. And one of the sad things is that it's, it's become so common here. It's, it's become so common here. And, and it makes you ask the question, like, what, what is going on, right? Like, what is happening? And if you haven't asked that, yourself that question in the last couple of days, like, you might want to. Like, what is, what is happening? And, and beyond the, the isolated incident, which is an example of extreme brokenness, uh, if you're sort of an awake person, you have to ask that next question, which is, well, why would a young man, why would a young man, why would a young man resort to these kinds of actions? And, and where would he encounter these kinds of ideas? And, and why would they seem attractive to him? And why, why would he think this is an appropriate response to whatever data he's receiving, right? And the thing that happens when you begin to ask that question is you realize uh, the world is beautiful, but like whatever the brokenness is, guys, it's not surface. It's not surface brokenness. Like it's like, it's deep. It's really deep. It goes beyond even maybe our level of comprehension and whatever's wrong in the world, it's like really, really wrong. It's really wrong. Like, like you could get shot at the grocery store you could get shot at the grocery store. And so you go, I don't know what's going on in the world, but something is up. And you might be thinking, well, what does this have to do with the light of Jesus? Well, the light of Jesus, if he's the light of the world, it, he's illuminating. He's illuminating. Uh, we can see him and we can see the world as it is. We can see the world as it is 
uh, with respect to beauty, but we, we can also, and we must see the world as it is with respect uh, to brokenness. But here's the other thing that the light of Jesus does. It doesn't just show us the world as it is, it also shows us what is possible. This is actually very important. The light of Jesus is not just meant to be like this, this big reality check, and reality isn't just interpreted as what I see and what I can perceive, but the light of Jesus is a reality check in the sense that it is showing us true reality and true reality is what is possible and true reality is what is possible in terms of being a person, a person like Jesus, who lived in a world that was beautiful and deeply broken, just like the world we live in. What does it mean? What does it mean? The light of Jesus, light of the world, it means we can see what is possible. Uh, it means we have an answer for this question. What does it mean to be a person? Uh, we can see and know what it means to be a person because Jesus is the light of the world. He has shown us what it is to be a person. Uh, this question, how do we live faithfully in a pluralistic culture? That's a question that we need to deal with. In a pluralistic culture, how do we live faithfully? Jesus is the light of the world. He shows us. By the way, Roman culture of the first century, it was pluralistic just like ours. And, and this, Christian no, this Christian notion that we're gonna get like uh, Christian leaders in the White House and Christian leaders in the Senate and Christian leaders in Frankfurt and Christian leaders in TV and Christian leaders in media and Christian leaders here and Christian leaders there. And then we're gonna like from the top down make everything this Christian monoculture. It's not gonna happen. And when you try to do that, you actually end up stirring up more evil in the process. And one of the things we have to deal with is this question, how do we live faithfully in Babylon? How do we become a Daniel in the lion's den? How do we become Jesus in Rome? How do we live faithfully in a pluralistic culture with people who are very different than us and people who have different values? Here's the good news. Jesus is the light of the world. He has shown us. He has shown us and we can see it with our very eyes. We don't have to walk around saying it's Mammoth Cave. It is not Mammoth Cave. The light of the world is showing us what it is to be a faithful person in a pluralistic culture with people who think and maybe behave really differently than we do. We can know. Jesus is the light, not only showing us the world as it is, but he's also showing us what is possible. What is possible? Uh, number two, this is actually very important. Just like the sun illuminates our solar system and shows us things as they are, the light of Christ is external to us. This is important. The light of Jesus is external to us. What does this mean? It means, it means I don't emanate it. I'm not a self-generating LED. Uh, human beings have tremendous capacity to live selflessly and open. But if we're honest, we also have a tremendous capacity to be selfish at almost an alarming and unending rate. The light of Christ, it's showing, and just like the sun, it is external to us. Uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a self-generating LED. The image of God is placed inside of every single human being. But the Bible tells us that in a major way, somehow the image of God has been defaced, not removed, defaced. 
The image of God has been in some way marred. And it's not just that we have a capacity to be selfless, it's that we have tremendous capacity to be selfish. And anybody who's in the room knows that's true of all of us. Like me, me included. I have good moments followed by bad ones. And oftentimes my bad moments are reflexive. I didn't even think about it. Like I didn't even think about it. They come like, like the next breath of air. And, and I don't know about you, but I need the light of Christ to shine on me and to lead me and to show me the way, to shine on me and also to change me. The light of Christ is, is evident in the world. It's showing the world as it is, the beautiful and the broken. Uh, it's showing us what is possible. What does it mean to be a human? And it's also external. It's external. It means there's, there's, there's something out there and I'm, 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 I'm being drawn to it like a moth to the like a moth to the flame, I'm being drawn to it, you know? Uh, what, what does this mean? It, it means that I can't always just listen to my true self. That's really what I'm getting at this morning, you know? Uh, you can listen to your true self and end up in a world of hurt. Uh, you, can, you, can, you can listen to your inner witness and end up ruined. That's what I'm saying this morning. The true light is external to us. It comes to us. It leads us. It shows us. It illuminates but it's not just like I'm a self-imitating light creator. No, no, I've got some stuff in me that's really good and helpful. And I've also got some stuff in me that is reflexively harmful to me and to you. And I need something external from me to show me the real way. Jesus is the light of the world. I don't have an inner guru. I don't have, I don't have an inner voice that's always right. Sometimes if I listen to my inner voice, I'll shipwreck my life and my family as well, you know? I have to listen to something else. Uh, number three, what does light do? It causes growth. Uh, the, good news is, the good news is that the light of Christ, it, it, it illuminates and it, it actually does that. It changes us. It causes growth. Light causes things to grow. Every spring, the orbit of the earth around the sun begins a season change and we get a little more light every single day. Isn't it amazing? What it, like, Usually like winter solstice is, you know, right around that December, into December mark. And then all of a sudden, like within, within a week after we pass it, you can notice the day's getting longer. And, and it's amazing, right? And now, now it's nine o'clock and the kids are still out in the yard. In another month, it'll be 9.30 and the kids will still be, I love that, you know? It's a beautiful thing. And, and that rotation of the earth around the sun it's doing this magical thing where it's giving us more light. And because we're getting more light, we're getting more growth. The, the, the earth is beginning to green. And, and I loved it. A few, a few weeks ago, I had to go to Denver. River and I, we went to Denver and we did some work. And when we got home and we got out of the airplane and we stepped onto the ground in Kentucky, it was like somebody had done a magic trick because we went away and there were no leaves and we came home and all the leaves were there. It was, it was tremendous. The days lengthen and the grass starts to grow, the tree buds and everything turns green again. And my mom and dad, they were over the other day for Mother's Day. I, I made her dinner and it was good. <laughs> she just said it was yummy. And my mom, my mom noticed how much the trees next to our patio had grown. We, we've been living in our house for about 15 years. And when I, when I planted them, they were like, they were barely five feet tall and now they're like 12 or 13 feet tall and they're, they, they make like a wall. You, you, could, 
you could try to run through it and you wouldn't get through it. It's like this green wall, you know? And how did those trees grow? Well, they grew by soil contact, but it wasn't just soil contact. You can put things in the soil, but if it remains in the dark, it dies. You gotta expose it to the light. Yeah, those, those trees have grown because they've been standing in the light. And my wife, she has all kinds of plants in the house. She likes them better than she likes us. <laughs> and here's what's weird. There's these little plants and you put them in the window or whatever. And have you ever noticed how a house plant, it will, it, it'll sit there for a day or two and it's like all straight. And then on the third day, what is it? It's like, it's curved and then you have to turn the pot. And then it'll go the other way. Why? Why? Because pl even plants know, even plants know that if you get in the light, you'll grow. Even plants know that if you get in the light, you will grow. Here's the good news for everybody this morning. If you will expose yourself to the light of Jesus, you will grow and change. And you won't feel it. You won't feel it. You won't feel it. How many of you have ever planted like an oak tree in your front yard and it's like six feet tall and you come back the next year and how big is it? Six feet tall and one quarter of an inch. And you can't perceive it. Like you literally can't even tell. And you come back the next year and it's six feet tall, one quarter, and then maybe a half inch. And then, and then you come back 10 years later and it's seven feet tall. And you come back 100 years later and it's 100 feet tall. And you never perceived it. No. If you expose yourself to the light of Jesus, you will grow and you will change. If you will put yourself in his presence, you will grow and change. And by the way, that's why we do church. This is not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons. Uh, when we gather and when we sing and when we hear the scriptures and when Kate reads uh, the Bible to us and when somebody passes the offering around and when you have to sit with people who are different than you that you didn't choose, <laughs> That's how you know, it. by the way, that's how you know it's church. Like if there are people in this room that you're like, they're not, I, don't, I don't hang out with them. Then you're actually coming to church. When you do all of those things, what's happening is, is we're, we're taking a step into the light of Christ. And if you keep doing it, you will grow and change. You will grow and change. Uh, and then number four, orients. Light orients. It orients us in all kinds of ways, but I'm, I already tipped my hand at this. I've, I've been thinking about Copernicus and Jesus. In the last 500 years, we've discovered that we're not the center of the universe. But the good news is, someone who's like us is. Jesus is at the center, and he's shining. And Colossians says that he's holding all things together. I, I want to read you uh, a couple of verses out of Colossians chapter 1. Maybe the highest Christology in the whole Bible. Uh, Paul, reflecting on Jesus, he says this. Women, can we put that up? Jesus, uh, no, this is Colossians chapter one. You got that big dog? If you don't, it's cool. I'm gonna wait. Boom. Thank you, Wit. Great. Uh, Paul says this about Jesus. He says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything that was created through him and for him. And then finally, 
Uh, he existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. Light orients. It, it, it allows us to tell where we're at. Um, sailors would, would navigate by the stars in the night sky. They could orient themselves. They could tell where they were on the planet in relation to the stars. Uh, light orients in that it lets us know where we're at. And if Jesus is at the center, just like the sun, just like the sun holds the planets in their proper place, Jesus is holding, holding his church and his disciples and his beloved, his beloved sheep. He's holding those in their proper place. And just like the solar system has an order, so does Jesus shine and by his central gravity, so does he hold us all in place. I've been thinking about the solar system, but I've also been thinking about the disciples and Jesus. I've been thinking about uh, the disciples who walked down the road and they were, they were being led and they were being drawn in by Jesus. Like why else, why else would fishermen who'd fished every single day of their life, why else would they drop their nets and follow Jesus when he said, follow me? Why would they do that if it weren't for the fact that his light and his gravity were reaching out to them, right? And he comes to Matthew, who had been a tax collector his whole life and who was very rich. And he says to him, Matthew, I would love it if you would come and follow me. And Matthew stands up from the table and leaves. Like, what is that? It's the light and the gravity of Jesus. But I've also been thinking, I've been thinking about the crowds that would, would, they would chase Jesus just to be close. And I've been thinking about the guys who tore a hole in the roof to lower their, their friend who couldn't walk into Jesus. You know, like, why would you do that? Here's why you would do it, because he's the light of the world. And, and by him, you can see things as they really are, but also uh, you can see things as they ought to be. And, and they tore a roof, tore a hole in the roof, and they lowered their friend in because, because when you get in the light of Jesus, things change. And people who couldn't walk can stand up. And things that were weak get strong. And people who are broken become whole. And people who used to steal money as a tax collector become a faithful witness. And people who used to fish for fish start fishing for men. Like getting in the light of Christ will change you. It will orient you. It will put you in your proper place. Some of you in this room, you feel like Pluto. Here's what I want you to know. Pluto ain't going anywhere. You think I'm so far away. Maybe you're not. Maybe, maybe you're being held and maybe, maybe the, the light and the gravity of Jesus is beginning to draw you in. And I've also been thinking about everybody who's in this room who came to church this morning. I've been thinking about how we're, we're all being drawn to the light and the gravity of Jesus. And here's what I would like to say to the church this morning. Let his brilliance and his mass pull you close. Let him, let him, let him. And by the way, if you think you might in some way be caught into the light, the presence, the gravity, and the mass of Jesus, if you think there's even a shred of that possibility, I, I, would, say, I would say the smartest thing for you to do, uh, to put it in engineering terms, the most efficient thing for you to do would be to give in to it. Because fighting against that kind of light and gravity, it's a no-win solution. 
John Calvin would say irresistible. And I would agree. Here's the final thing I want to say to the church this morning. Let your eyes adjust. Coming close to Jesus can be an adjustment. For some of us in the room, it can be scary or even uncomfortable. Sometimes when we, when we run from those things that are scary or uncomfortable, we're doing so because it's just reflexive. Like, who wants to be scared and who wants to be uncomfortable? But here's what I want to tell you this morning. All of that is just, it's just our eyes adjusting. Uh, how many of you have ever been in your house when it was dark and then you walked outside on a perfectly bright June day and you did this for like a minute. You were like squinting. You could, you're just so overcome. But then what happens? You adjust, you get used to the light and what was, what was uncomfortable becomes fine. And what was, what was maybe maybe scary, maybe that's not the right word, but what was, what was jarring becomes, becomes fine. You squint at first. Well, here's what I want to say to those of you who are in the room and you've come out of a dark room and you've come into the light of Christ. Squint if you need to. It's, it's fine. Put your hand up. But just stay in his light. If you will stay in his light, uh, you'll be able to open your eyes. And you'll be able to see. You'll be able to see things as they really are. You, you, won't, be, you won't be fooled. Uh, you'll be able to see the, the world as it really is. Uh, you'll be able to see the world as beautiful. Uh, you'll also not be, not be fooled into thinking the world isn't broken either. You'll be able to hold those two things together. And by the way, uh, in the days that we're living in, uh, we need, one of the things that Christians need is we need the ability to call the world beautiful and broken and to name it. Uh, I, I just want to tell you, there, there are, there's like this, there's a, there's a humanistic philosophy running around that just says, oh, the world is just beautiful. No, it isn't. No, it ain't. And if you think that, you haven't, you haven't gone to certain parts of town. And if you think that, you haven't been to certain parts of the world. And what is true in certain parts of the town and what is true in certain parts of the world is also true in you and me. Not just out there, in me. In me. We, we need the ability to, to see the beauty of the world and we need the ability to see the brokenness of the world, to name them and to hold it together. That's what Christians do. And we do that by the light of Christ. And it's uncomfortable at first, but if you just squint and stay in the light, you'll be able to, you'll be able to stand there. And if you'll stay in the light, you'll get reoriented. And if you stay in the light, you'll grow and change. This is the gospel of Jesus. This is the gospel of Jesus. We can see things as they are, and we can also see things as they ought to be and let the light grow us. Let the light grow us. So this morning, if you're on the worship band, come on up. And if you're uh, not on the worship band, as everybody else, you can stand up. Thanks again for stopping by the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening at the Vineyard, you can follow us on social media. Until next time.